Good morning again. I felt, I, I don't know, it start, the video started and it said, need a break, and like right away I wanted a Snickers or a Kit Kat or something. Did anybody else? No? Okay, good. I saw, good. Uh, hey, um, we are finishing, uh, this is week three of a series at Boulder Church called Resisting Restlessness. Um, just a couple of housekeeping items before we dive into the message this morning. Uh, first, Vacation Bible School registration is open. Uh, I registered at least one of my kids this week. Uh, well, Dina registered at least one of our kids this week. Um, you can register your kids or volunteer to be a part of it at boulder.church slash VBS. That stands for Vacation Bible School. Um, boulder.church slash VBS is a great great place to volunteer or to register for Vacation Bible School that's happening here, July 11 through 15. It's happening in the evenings. Um, so something great for the whole family to come to. More information at that website, www.boulder.church. VBS, good. Uh, next week, June 25, Ray Dabrowski will be bringing us the message next week. He will be talking to us about what it means to be embraced by wonder. I hope you'll join us. Uh, finally, if you are looking for uh, evidence about the things that we really say here, um, we have a, a podcast that you can listen to. You can subscribe uh, through our website at boulder.church, or if you go to iTunes and search for Boulder Church, we should be close to the top of the results. Uh, so this week, we are celebrating, we're talking about celebrating Sabbath. We're talking about resisting restlessness. Uh, and our text this week comes from Exodus, the story in Exodus, specifically in chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. And here's how it reads. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Interesting, it doesn't mention husband. Uh, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. What does this have to do with Sabbath? Remember, we left off last week asking this question. How does your celebration of Sabbath affect the lives of people around you? So I, after, after preaching last week, I... I I sort of left wondering if, if it sort of felt like we were sidestepping the issue. After all, we began by suggesting that Christianity and culture and Sabbath sort of had something to do with each other, but are we seeing that from the Bible? Does keeping Sabbath holy, as the commandment says, really have anything to do with how we treat other people? Or is it just sort of its own independent thing? Is it a stretch to suggest that sort of fitting Sabbath into this, uh, some sort of what we call a social justice model of the gospel, where we talk like all, all God really wants from us is to be nice to the people around us. Is that really what Sabbath is about? So I tried to regroup. I went back, I did some more reading, read from some broader sources, read from some narrower sources, sort of compared and contrasted, and I was, I was reassured, I was encouraged as I read from writers across the spectrum they kept coming around to this idea that Sabbath, whether we view it from the perspective of just the Ten Commandments or whether we believe, like the Bible suggests, that Sabbath was instituted much earlier at creation. 
however we understand it, it challenges the culture that we live in. It has something to do with the people around us too. But the problem we face, like many people of faith for generations before us, is that we still struggle with how to get it right. What's the best way to understand it? Are we seeing the whole picture? So I want to show you a painting uh, by El Greco. Some of you maybe know more about it than I do. I had to do a little bit of research on it, but it's, it is famous. It's hanging in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and it's called The Opening of the Fifth Seal. And that actually is probably close to the original size. It's, it's about seven and a half by six and a half uh, feet in dimension. So it's a substantial painting. I took one painting class when I was in college, and that was enough for me. My trouble was I could never mix the right amount of color for whatever I was trying to paint. So I would have a palette that was full of sort of a useless, ugly green color. All that is to say, when someone undertakes something like this, a substantial work of art, and, and does it beautifully, um, it's, it's humbling for me. So the setting of this painting has been described as St. John witnessing the mysteries of the apocalypse. The picture shows John and the other believers with their arms up toward heaven, worshiping in the midst of their revelation. Their hands are in the air. They're waving like they just don't care. It makes us a little uncomfortable if we didn't grow up Pentecostal, right? Um, we only resonate with worship that, that sort of affects like from the shoulders up, right? Not the whole, that's not a, worship doesn't affect the whole person, right? That's not a real thing. But in the 1800s, someone decided, there used to be more to this painting, actually. In the 1800s, someone decided that in the name of improvement, roughly 170 centimeters should be trimmed from the top. Now, at first I heard 170 centimeters, and because I don't think in centimeters, I thought, that's not so bad. And then I did the math, Google calculator to the rescue, 170 centimeters is about six feet. So about half of this painting was removed in the name of improving it in order to show, in order to focus on what someone thought was really important. So what once a picture, was once a picture of John and the believers worshiping is now a picture of them raising their hands to Nothing? I mention this partly because of Ray's series next week, well, one-week series, um, where he's talking to us about being embraced by wonder. And I have to wonder sometimes if we've reduced some of the mystery, some of the immensity of following Jesus to something more palatable, more understandable. If we've improved it, but maybe we don't still leave room for the Holy Spirit to work, to speak to us. Because we want to grip on theology, right? When we, talk about, when we talk about theology, which just means God words, if anyone ever tells you they have a degree or a doctorate in theology, it's a doctorate in words about God, right? Um, So to think that we've got, like, we want, to, we want to be able to somehow describe the immensity of who God is, and yet we want it all to be really digestible. We want it to be something we can sort of package, we can talk about, and it's easy, we can dribble it, we can shoot it, we can handle it easily. We want it to be under our control. 
We want it to be something that we have a grasp on. And this makes me think again about Pharaoh. We mentioned two weeks ago, Pharaoh was consumed with this idea of control, of commodity, of production that made him anxious. Here's what it says in Exodus about Pharaoh in chapter five, beginning with verse four. And as I read this, take note of all the times it talks about work, about some kind of product, about productivity, about commodity, take a listen. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take your people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give people straw to make bricks in the past. Let them go and gather the straw for themselves. Let let them collect it themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men and let and that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get the straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work your daily task each day as when there was straw. In other words, the supply isn't there, but we still have the demand. Keep producing. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. And that's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, go and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task, each day. Anybody here make bricks? No, but we still have tasks, right? We still have demands. We still have this requirement to produce, to make more, to do more, to do the impossible. We have to remember that this was part of Pharaoh's job description, right? Was to be the guy that worried about production, that worried about whether there would be enough. But part of Pharaoh's job description was beyond that. Remember, we talked in in week one, we talked about how in addition to running the country, people also believed that Pharaoh was was a god in their culture, right? They believed that he was responsible for maintaining the balance of the universe. Which brings us, oh, which brings me to my first question before our first recalibrate question. Did everyone get a worship guide this morning? If you did not get one, please raise your hand. 
and they will be to you shortly. But this brings us to our first recalibrate question. When was the last time you felt responsible for maintaining balance in the universe? Maybe you're a parent trying to keep track of all the soccer practices and dance recitals and camp schedules and things are starting to fill up the calendar. I have to uh, confess, right, that's good for you. It's supposed to be good for you. I have to confess, after I started working here, I've started relying so much more on my calendar, my to-do list than I ever used to in the past. As a kid, my dad would always ask me, well, where's your to-do list? Just write it down. The problem for me was that I had never written down where my to-do list was, and so I, I could never find it. But now, I'm learning to rely on my calendar, and if I'm honest, I have to admit that I get a certain sense of satisfaction from seeing all of the appointments in the calendar. None of them overlap, just one ends, the next one begins, I know I'm never double booked anywhere, ha! Right, I see all these things and it, it has this calming effect for me that I never really appreciated before, but when everything lines up in the calendar the way that it's supposed to, I feel like there's balance in the universe. And then I get a phone call and everything changes, right? <laughs> maybe, um, maybe you're the peacekeeper in your family. Or maybe you're the antagonist. Some families have antagonists. They're the people that make all of our holiday dinners tough to sit through because they want to talk about politics or religion or they want to they talk about the tough stuff, right? They want to, uh, John Chamberlain used an expression, they want to shake the tree, right? So every family has a, 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 maybe, has a tree shaker. And then there are the peacekeepers in the family, the people who work to make sure everyone is included, make sure everyone has a spot at the table, and make sure that no one gets things really the way they want it to be because we all have to compromise so we can get along and be happy, right? Any peacekeeper? No, don't raise your hand or the antagonists will come for you. Or... Maybe like me, you're an only child, and so you have to sort of play both roles. You're at the dining room table, and you flip the dining room table over, and then you say, can't we all just do this peaceably? Um, maybe for you, maybe the way you maintain balance in the universe is through your work. Maybe you lead a team. Maybe you are the team. Maybe it's a, a business, or it's a side business, or it's a side-side business. But we all juggle things. We all have things in our lives that pile up. And every once in a while, if we're honest, it feels like the balance of the universe is starting to get a little bit wobbly. Like if we don't keep everything where it's supposed to be in all the right places, it's all going to topple. And wouldn't it be nice in those moments if we had a reminder, something to remind us that everything is going to be okay, that that balance doesn't rest on our own puny shoulders. I read a book this week that I wish I had been given much earlier in life. Um, it was written in the 50s, and so I'm not sure whether that's an excuse because I, I'm not sure if it's whether, it's whether it's an excuse not to have read it or whether I should be ashamed because I haven't, but uh, it's a classic among theologians who like to talk about Sabbath. It's called The Sabbath. It was written by Abraham Joshua Heschel. And some of you have maybe read it. And as I sat reading, I got so immersed in, in the language that Heschel uses. Because it wasn't just heady academic stuff. It was poetic language. 
It was rich language to talk about the art of celebrating a day that we call Sabbath. I want to read you one passage that's one of my favorites so far. The words, on the seventh day God finished his work, from Genesis 2, verse 2, seem to be a puzzle. It's not said he rested on the seventh day. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. We surely would expect the Bible to tell us that on the sixth day, on the sixth day, God rested, or on the sixth day, God finished his work. But obviously, the ancient rabbis concluded there was an act of creation on the seventh day. Just as heaven and earth were created in six days, Menuha was created on the Sabbath. Now, say Menuha. Menuha. This word we usually translate just as rest, but remember we learned last week that Sabbath, Shabbat, Shabbat, is an active form of the word. So it's not just passive, it's not just, it's not just to rest. Heschel goes on to say this, after six days of creation, what did the universe still lack? Menuha. Came the Sabbath, came Menuha, and the universe was complete. To the biblical mind, Menuha is the same as happiness and stillness, as peace and harmony. Now, we said that Pharaoh, in the eyes of the Egyptians, was responsible for maintaining harmony in the universe. But here we understand, through the gift of Sabbath, that it's not Pharaoh, that it's not us, but that it's God that maintains the balance of the universe, Menuha. Some of you might remember uh, last year, Pastor Japheth preached a series where he talked about the process of creation, where he, where he talked about the story does anyone remember the word for chaos? It stuck with me. Tohu wabohu, right? That God brought the world from a state of chaos, from tohu wabohu, systematically, intentionally, through the story of creation, to completion, to wholeness, to manuha. So it's easier, for me anyway, to understand now how the celebration of Sabbath goes against the grain of our culture. Like the children of Israel, like Pharaoh, we live in a world that thrives on getting more done, more stuff, more production, makes our world feel a little chaotic sometimes. But when God created the world, we understand the work was not created by doing more work. It was literally marked, completed, with an act of creating rest, manuha, harmony. Our trouble, or at least I should say my trouble, is that I look for rest, that harmony, in all the wrong places. Maybe you do too. So we do things like we self-medicate or we overindulge. We become workaholics. Or we become other kinds of aholics. And it doesn't always take the shape we think it will. We always... Not always. We like to talk about not trusting Jesus, like the opposite of trusting Jesus is selling drugs or listening to too much rock and roll or hula hooping or whatever, something really sinister, right? But sometimes 
we try to find harmony just by accumulating more stuff. Some people take this to extremes. We've all seen this show, the reality TV show, Hoarders. It's an addictive show. And you wouldn't think that you could spend so much time just looking at all other people's stuff and going, man, they've got so much stuff. But we all do it to some degree. We convince ourselves the next, okay, it pains me to say this. I know I wrote it down. It pains me to say that the next iPhone, the next Apple Watch, we have this idea, like, if we get this stuff, it's going to improve our lives. It's going to help us sort of get it together. It's going to help us to organize that calendar so everything lines up. So we sacrifice time. We sacrifice parts of our life in order to be able to afford and amass this stuff. Nicer place to live, better car, bikes for the whole family, nicer TV, bigger bank account. Actually, we use that phrase a lot, bigger bank account. Does anyone have a problem with their bank account not being big enough? My problem is not the size of the account. There's plenty of room in there. The problem for me is the, the emptiness of the account, right? I want, I want more to fill it up. But we sacrifice time to accumulate more of this physical stuff because it's in our nature to think that we can balance the scales of the universe by having the right things in the right places. Which brings us to our second recalibrate question this morning. What is more painful, to lose material things or to lose time? A couple of years after Dina and I got married, we moved from Michigan to Texas. And when we first got married, we lived in a house that was maybe 750 square feet, generously speaking. But it was the right size for two people, no pets, not a lot of stuff. But after a couple of years, we started to accumulate some stuff, and we moved from that small, not, not a tiny house by today's standards by any means, but we moved from that small house to a little bit bigger house. It was 1,200 square feet, and we still, we collected more stuff. It had a garage, so I had to buy some tools. And it wasn't until we got ready to move to Texas we realized how much stuff we had accumulated. We moved to an apartment that I think was smaller than our original house had been. It was configured a little differently, but we decided the solution, of course, was to have a garage sale. So we took everything, um, we, we stickered, we sorted, we had color, I mean, Tina is like, I'm gonna tattle on you, she's like the garage sale queen. So we had color-coded stickers, we had, we had a cash register. We were that serious, we were gonna make that much money, we needed a cash register at our garage sale. So the night before, we had everything organized, set out in the house, we had, you know, housewares were on one table, and you know, old clothes and boots and things were. So the next morning we were ready to go, and sure enough, 5.45, the alarms went off. We wanted to catch the before work crowd. So we took everything out, we set it up, we had everything priced accordingly, and as we were pricing, we had to decide, did we want to price these things to make money, or did we want these things to sell? There was no middle ground. <laughs> we were either gonna make money we were, we were either going to make money or we were going to get rid of this stuff. And we wanted to make money. So we priced the things out. We started to sell a few things. And we, I think we sold an old Palm Pilot. We sold calculators, binders, pots and pans, spatulas. 
for some reason were a hot item that morning. And while we were going through this stuff, getting ready for the garage sale, I remember thinking about some of these things that I just needed, I needed to have them in order to get my life organized. In order to have it together, I needed to have some of this stuff. Now, some of it wasn't necessarily life organizing stuff. Some of it was like there was an old Nintendo system, which I really needed. The kinds of stuff that would make our lives better in some way or another. But as we got close to the end of the day, our goal changed a little bit. We started to look at all of the things that were still sitting in the driveway. And we decided it's time to price these things to sell. So we, we slashed prices. We went from 15 cents to 10 cents on some things. It was crazy. It was insanity. And at the end of the day, we still had a pile of stuff with 10 cent price tags on it. So we shoved that pile to the end of the driveway. We put it on a table, and I thought it was clever. We made a sign that said, free to a good home. Within 15 minutes, all of it was gone, including the table we had put it on. <laughs> so much for the clever sign. Um, but I learned a really deep spiritual lesson that day. And here it is. I want to share it with you. People are cheap. No, that wasn't really the lesson. Well, it was a lesson that I learned that day, but um, the lesson that I really learned is that sometimes we give things, material stuff, a high value in our life because we think those things in some way or another will make us. We put our trust in things, in buildings, in institutions, in money because we believe on some level they will make us who God wants us to be. But in the celebration of Sabbath, God has given us what Abraham Joshua Heschel calls a palace in time. Not in things, but in time. We can spend all week chasing the material stuff. But one day a week, God gives us a reminder that we can't accumulate enough to balance the scales of the universe. So we talked last week about how Jesus often took the opportunity to heal people on Sabbath. This week, I want to suggest that in Sabbath, we have a reminder that we cannot get enough stuff to make ourselves whole. Or to put it another way, in Sabbath, we have a divine invitation to be present. And to be present with Jesus makes, it, makes us whole. Now, that, that idea, be present, you hear that in, in culture now all the time, right? It's it's a way that we sort of calm ourselves and we tune out the outside world and we, and we, and, and phrases like be present, I think have gotten a bad name because we have stopped associating them with their original source. But when God calls us to be present, to be with him, there is something transformative about doing that, about being in the presence of Jesus. And the powerful thing but also the tricky thing, I think, about Sabbath is that God asks us to remember, right? Remember the Sabbath. Remember this invitation to be present. But the Sabbath is, in and of itself, a reminder of something even greater. And the power of a reminder is not in the thing itself, right? But it's in what it points us to. 
So Dina and I have developed sort of, sort of a tradition for watching It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas. And I say sort of a tradition because I think both of our families have, have always wanted it to be an annual tradition. It's something we do every year. But somehow, we never seem to quite do it every year with, with both families. But because the families sort of tend to alternate or sometimes we watch it ourselves, it's sort of turned into a tradition for us. And if you remember, there's a character, Uncle Billy, from It's a Wonderful Life, and his technique, his reminder technique is, anybody remember what it is? He ties a string around his finger, right? Whenever he needs to remember something. Well, there's, there's this part in the movie, you may remember it well, where he's supposed to have remembered something really important. And he looks at his fingers, and there are strings everywhere. The power of reminders is in their ability to point us to something greater than the reminder itself. They're powerful because of the thing or person about which we are being reminded. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 of that letter that Sabbath actually reminds us that Jesus is our Sabbath. He has done the work of redemption. He has done the work of salvation. He is still at work in our lives. Jesus is our Sabbath. So in celebration of Sabbath, we were reminded that God is responsible for creating balance in the universe, not us. We were reminded that the Holy Spirit does the work of convicting and converting human hearts, not us. We were reminded that Jesus has done the work of redeeming humanity. But what does that mean for us? If Jesus has done the work, maybe that means we should just sort of sit. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the people around us. Or maybe to be God's people in this culture, in our culture, means that we can show with our lives that there is a new way of being in the world. I've been promising for the last three weeks that we would talk about how the Sabbath commandment relates to the others. What I hope you see, we're going to take a look in just a second, but what I hope you'll see in particular is that celebrating Sabbath shapes the way we view God, and it changes the way we act, the way we relate toward other people. So let's take a look. I'll give a disclaimer, though, that some of these are just my own attempt at, at making this simple, and some of these issues maybe are more complex, but I'd like to suggest at least one way that Sabbath has arms and legs that affect the way we understand the other nine commandments. First, you shall have no other gods before me. If we are willing to trust God with the balance of the universe, it makes sense, I think, that he would be God above all others. Number two, no graven images. We cannot accumulate or make enough stuff to bring order or balance to the universe. Number three, don't take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. If God is the keeper of the universe, and he is the keeper of our lives, we should live like we believe that. Number four, well, that is the Sabbath commandment, so it's kind of easy to see how it has to do with itself. Number five, honor your father and mother. Celebrating Sabbath reminds us that it is God's work in our lives, in our heritage, and in our future, and not our own ambition that has made our way of being in the world. 
Number six, don't commit murder. If we do not make our way in the world, but if we trust God as the source of life, then human life is far too valuable to be viewed as a disposable commodity. What happened this week in Orlando, where human lives, because of their orientation, were taken and treated as disposable, is a tragedy. If we do not make our way in the world but trust God as the source of life, then human life is far too valuable to be viewed as a disposable commodity. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Trusting God with the balance of the universe also means that we can trust him to help us build and maintain healthy relationships. Number eight, don't steal. We've talked about stuff already, but if your own stuff isn't enough to make you who God wants you to be, then why would taking someone else's stuff help with that process? Number nine, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, there's some discussion about the nature of, of the wording of this one that we sort of think means that it, it applies specifically to uh, bearing false witness against someone in a court of law. So lying is okay. No, don't tweet that part. Um, yeah, lying is okay, just don't do it in court. No, I think there's more to it than this, but um, for the sake of argument, we'll go with that. We'll go with the idea that it's just about being in court. Well, I would suggest that if we trust God has provided enough for us, then it would be unnecessary for us to try and get ahead at someone else's expense. Why else would you bear false witness in a court of law? Finally, don't covet. I've heard it said that coveting isn't just wanting something. We all want to wake up tomorrow. We all want to eat lunch today. Some of you just want me to finish the sermon so we can get on with the other not churchy part of our day. We want our families to be happy and healthy. So there are good things to want in life. So wanting itself isn't necessarily the issue. But coveting, on the other hand, we could maybe understand as wanting something more than we want God, thinking that thing, that person, that job, will make enough of a difference in our way of being in the world that it would be more important to us than who Jesus wants us to be. It's constantly thinking there must be something better than the way of being in the world that God has provided for us. The Apostle Paul talks about it in his letter to the church in Rome, about how keeping the law, doing the right thing, had at one point become more important to him than following Jesus. So to covet then is effectively to say, God is not enough. Jesus is not enough. But we do believe that Jesus is enough, don't we? Don't we? Or at least that's what Sabbath is supposed to remind us. And if we believe that to be true, I think it should affect the way we relate, we relate to the people around us. Did you know uh, the Ten Commandments happen in more than one place in the Bible. They happen first in Exodus. But Moses revisits the commandments again in Deuteronomy. And the wording is exactly the same, except for one phrase, and it's in the Sabbath commandment. 
And it's the inclusion of this phrase, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now, sometimes we translate that along with you or they may rest too. But I think that wording is interesting, that your, your male and female servant may rest as well as you do. So there's something, at least, to the idea that Sabbath also affects the way we relate to people around us. And the Bible gives a few great examples, and it actually gives a few not-so-great examples too, but there's one that I'd like to look at today, and it's, it's a text that we quote all the time, but it usually gets quoted at graduation events, sporting events, things where we want to sort of demonstrate God is on our side. And it's, the, the familiar part for us is, uh, it's, in, it's in the letter, or it's in the story of Jeremiah, chapter 29, and usually it's the 11th verse where we say, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, to prosper you, and, um, and that's good. It's good to believe that God is, is with us and wants what's good for us, but in the context of the story, this is a really interesting text, and so I'd like for us to consider what it might look like for us to be God's Sabbath people, what it looked like for the children of Israel. Let's read what it says, beginning with uh, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So what's happened so far? It's a letter. The people have been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Good. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem, and the letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Jedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So what's going on here? Well, the children of Israel had been taken captive by Babylon, and as was their custom, the Babylonian government took all of the influential culture shapers, all the people who would have been responsible for, for sort of influencing what life would have looked like for the children of Israel, and they removed them from the situation. The hope was that the children of Israel would sort of assimilate, sort of become like the Babylonians, that that would be their new way of being in the world. What was that's what was supposed to happen. But what happened instead was that the children of Israel sort of, within their ranks, withdrew they sort of pulled back. They didn't want to, they, they recognized what was going on. This was an attempt to change their identity. And so they, they sort of cloistered, they sort of isolated themselves. And it said in verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, wait a minute. Did you catch what God said? Not who Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile, but God says, to all the exiles whom I have sent. In other words, God is still in control of the situation. You may feel like culture has the best of you, but God is still at work in the world. Build houses, and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take your wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have you in exile 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, engage the culture that you're part of. Help to shape the way of being in the world for the people that are around you. Building houses and planting gardens, those are not temporary things, right? I'm terrible at gardening, but I'll say this. If I were to plant a garden, it would take a lot of care. It would take a lot of love. It would cause me to put down roots, maybe literally, in the area where I was. These are time-consuming tasks that unless you didn't care about them at all would require you to be part of the place where you were. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for, Bab for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. Here's the familiar text. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I think it's important when we read this story to recognize God is not calling the children of Israel to abandon their values. He's not calling them to give up being God's people, but instead he's calling them into the city, into the place where they live, to change the landscape to change the way people understand God, to change the way people relate to each other. It might be worth some discussion, too, about the fact that God instructs them, what he instructs them to do is fairly commonplace stuff. Like, he doesn't suggest a seminar. He doesn't say, set up a tent and call everyone to it. There's nothing wrong with tents. But God doesn't suggest a big event. He suggests that they reach their community through ordinary, everyday commonplace things. I wonder about the idea of, of finding something ordinary like planting gardens that grow and transform the landscape of our society. I wonder, could it be that God still calls a Sabbath people to transform the landscape of their neighborhoods and cities with the way they view God and relate to people around them? This brings us to our final question in your worship guide. And we're going to end our service this morning a little differently than we usually do. Um, I would love it if you would tear that connect card out of the back page of your worship guide. And as, as we listen to this last song, or whether you want to do it between now and Bible study time, um, we're going to listen to a song together. One of my favorite songs is by Stephen Curtis Chapman. And the words, I think, tie up what we're talking about in this series so well. Be still and know that he is God. As we listen to this song together, I'll invite you to consider the words that are on the screen.
But before you do that, I'm going to ask you to consider this third question. In what areas of your life is God calling you to plant gardens? Let's answer this question. We'll listen to the song. I'll invite, we'll invite Kevin to come up and bless us when we're done.